here tonight. This is, this is really going to be uh, the last sermon in this series, but I feel like it's, it's going to be a really inspirational sermon in many ways. All right, so Lord, we just lift up this time in the Word. Lord, as we come in Jesus' name through His blood, we thank You for the Word tonight. Lord, we thank You for Your faithfulness. And Lord, I thank you for coming upon me, anointing and speaking through me everything that needs to be spoken tonight, that everything is going to be accomplished, your will to be done under a mighty anointing, as you speak like living seeds of truth that's sown out in a good soil. Let your Holy Spirit even right now, Lord, move upon every one of us, everybody hearing this, watching this, that the Holy Spirit will move upon you. And Lord, help us by the Spirit to be good soil for the Word of God. Lord, our minds will be um, able to understand our hearts will be open to the Lord and his word and our eyes and ears we'll, we will be able to see and hear maybe what we couldn't before but the Holy Spirit makes us good soil and helps us he's our teacher and Lord I thank you by the spirit speaking through me everything needs to be said it will be sown into that good soil watered by the Holy Spirit take root, grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes but we thank you for a powerful time tonight and that everything will be accomplished in and through this that you will to be done. Lord, that it will, the wind of your spirit carry this out among the nations. It will get where it needs to go, accomplish what it needs to. And Lord, we know the Bible says your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We stand on that promise. But we also know the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So Lord, we submit everything unto you in unreserved obedience. We resist the devil. Anything that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to accomplish and what it's supposed to. In the name of Jesus, we bind you right now. You will back off in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for your angels just clearing all that away. And Lord, that there'll be an open heaven, your peace. And Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your anointing and your awesome word. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so we're dealing with part eight tonight. And I'm going to be dealing with prevailing, persistent prayer. And in this, an emphasis on faith. How many knows we've got to have faith? And let me tell you, sometimes, a lot of times, most of the time, when we pray about things, you are not going to see everything change tomorrow. Most of the time, it's going to be a little while before you see the answer prayers. And that goes the same with prophetic words. People are funny. They'll get a word, and then they wake up the next day, and you think, well, why hadn't it happened? You know? It's like, friend, those things can work themselves out over a period of time, and you better be praying into it because, like I've been talking about the last two or three weeks, the enemy wants to try to hinder and delay things, you see. And if we pray, greater is he that's in us. And he that's in this world, we have the victory and we have the weapons and we, we have God's word, we have authority, but we have to rise up and use that authority. We cannot be passive. We've got to be assertive. And so tonight I'm going to be dealing with prayer, prevailing, persistent prayer, okay? And I'm going to start out with James chapter 5, verse 16. And I'm reading this from the Amplified Classic because I love the way this reads. Y'all, please look this way and hear me. This is so good. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer. Now, see, they go into the Greek here, and they kind of blossom out some things. The earnest. How many knows that it's got to be heartfelt, and it's got to be continued? It's persistent. It's not just some little wimpy prayer, and then you walk off. No, we are going to be earnest about it. We're going to continue in prayer. It says, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Isn't that good? I believe that that is exactly what this scripture is trying to say. I know the King James says it a certain way, etc., but I believe that this translation really brings out what it's saying. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Wow. And it goes on to give an example. Elijah was a human being with the nature such as us, with feelings and affections in a constitution like ours. He prayed earnestly that it not rain, and no rain fell on the earth for three 
years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the heavens supplied rain, and the land produced its crops as usual. And so the Lord is showing us here in this that Elijah was a man like us, but his prayers could shut up the heavens for three and a half years, and his prayers could open them again. Isn't that something? So, guys, I think a lot of times the reason why we don't see the things that we don't see is because we don't believe like we need to. If we really believe the word when we pray, we, we would see tremendous things because the Bible says the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. And so a lot of times, a lot of churches believe things like cessation. They believe that everything has been done away with back in the New Testament time period when it was written years, thousands of years ago. A lot of times people are not believing God for things. They pray, but they don't really believe. You know, listen, River of Life, God can break something loose in a small group of people in prayer, just like those men in that barn in Barvis, just like the Edward Miller and the, that small group of prayer warriors in Argentina back in the late 40s. It was dead, friend. It was, it was hard there, but they got a breakthrough in prayer. And I could go on and on. I'll tell a few more tonight, but small groups of people where it was dead and dry and difficult that they began to pray and something broke loose in their prayers that shook the community and many times affected the world before it was over. So we've got to believe God. God can do it. He's done it many times before. This isn't like one little isolated thing. God has done this every time there's been a major revival. Somebody, usually a small group of people, somebody was praying and touched heaven, and God stepped down, and it shook the nations. In Psalms 34, 17, when the righteous cry out, the Lord hears. There's something about having like a desperate cry, a deep calling unto deep, that God can put in us where something deep in us begins to cry out to the deep of God. And it's such a very deep, powerful prayer. There's a desperate cry. And that right there seems to be, so let me use an analogy in the natural because as we deal with the fullness of time, I mean, we've read that in scriptures, Things come to the fullness of time. See, we call it Kairos timing versus Kronos timing, which I've taught on. But when somebody's going through the nine months of pregnancy, it's one way. But as it gets now to being the fullness of time, there, the contractions start coming. There's a groan. There's an intensity that starts coming. And it becomes more frequent and more intense the closer it gets until the fullness as the child is actually coming forth, you see? And that's exactly how it is as we're praying. There's something, a deep cry, that the closer you get, it seems like the more intense the prayers are, the deeper the groan, the more desperate the cry, and the more frequency and earnest in prayer that people are, it just seems like it's getting more and more intense until finally something breaks loose. And I believe that's exactly what we're experiencing. And you, you feel it too. I know you do. There's more of a frequency of prayer. There's more of an intensity. There's a deeper groan. There, there's something there that's like an earnest cry unto God. And the closer you're getting to your breakthrough, the closer you're getting to revival, the more that that's going to start coming forth. And Jesus, we know the story in John chapter 11, the famous story about Lazarus being raised from the dead. But Jesus, he delayed. Some people came to him and said, your friend Lazarus is sick, and Jesus deliberately waited. And then he goes later, days later, after Lazarus was dead, and the reason the father had him wait was because there was going to be a greater miracle. Jesus had already healed a lot of people. But this wasn't going to be a healing. This was going to be a dead raising. And so Jesus comes, and when he shows up, and I'll read in chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw her sobbing, the sister, one of the sisters, and the Jews who came with her also sobbing, they were just deeply moved and weeping because of his death. The Bible says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, 
He was troubled in spirit, and in different translations, he sighed, and another translation says he groaned. Did y'all hear that? Because I'm going to talk about the deep groaning. There's something in Romans 8, I'm going to read it to you in verse 26, that unfortunately I'm concerned has been lost by many in this generation. Romans 8, 26, it says, So too, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid, and he bears, up, bears us up in our weakness. For we do not know what prayer to offer, nor how to offer it worthily as we ought. But the Spirit himself goes to meet our supplication and pleads in our behalf with unspeakable yearnings and groanings too deep for words. You see, I've heard these intercessors here. We pray with our understanding. We pray in English, and the Holy Spirit moves upon us, and people begin to pray in their heavenly language or praying in the Spirit, and that's very powerful because the Holy Spirit is praying the perfect will of God, and He knows what to pray. That's part of what this is saying. But it even goes a step deeper that there are these deep groanings that are too deep for words. And so it's like a deep calling out unto deep. And I hear these intercessors, just a groan and a deep wail that's coming forth. That right there is the deep within us calling out to the deep of God. And that is the deepest form of prayer. It is yearnings and groanings too deep for words. How many knows sometimes the Holy Spirit is groaning through us because it is too deep for even words to adequately bring forth what is being said. It's a deep call unto God. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you to come and save the lost. Lord, we need you to come and heal and deliver, Lord. There's this deep cry within. And that's what Jesus was experiencing here. It says that as they were weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and he groaned. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says, Jesus wept. Did y'all catch that? So he groaned and he wept. See, Jesus here, what people I don't think really catch here is Jesus was being used as an intercessor right here. Did y'all catch that? He's groaning and weeping. There's a deep cry here. And it's the type of deep prayer that actually raised the dead. And there was something that those that worked with Oral Roberts back in the day, when Oral would, would go and he would minister, there were people that worked closely with his ministry, and, and people would come from all over, and they, there were so many prayer requests. I mean, so many people were battling sickness, and some of it was extremely serious, life-threatening. And they would have a table there that had all these different needs and requests that were on it, and, and he would pr pray over those requests. But there were actual times that the people that worked with Oral Roberts said that he actually got on the table and he began to just begin to groan and travail and he was calling out and there was this deep groan in him over those needs. And how many knows that Oral saw amazing things? But what a lot of people don't realize is that it was out of that deep groan and that powerful intercessory prayers that caused that to come forth, you see? And let me tell you that every move of God goes back to the intercessors, okay? And let me give you one that a lot of people don't know. I'm just going to say this in passing, but see, we all know about Oral Roberts and William Branham and others that, that were used so mightily. Well, what people don't know, okay, is that before the revivals of the 40s and 50s that we all talk about, there was a man by the name of Franklin Hall and he, was, he wrote a book called The Atomic Power Prayer and Fasting that many of you have actually read. Well, he wrote that back in the 30s. And Franklin Hall was actually used so powerfully in prayer and fasting. He was a prayer and fasting general. And he would lead groups of people, even going into churches and other areas, and he would meet with them, and he would come together and lead them in a time of prayer and fasting. And it was so intense that some of the people that were there would say as he would pray, they'd be, they had been praying and fasting for a long period of time as a church. He would get up and pray, and they said the atmosphere of heaven would come in that place so thick 
they said that there was actually a fragrance of the Lord that was so strong that would come in that place. The whole atmosphere would change, and even the smell of the atmosphere would change. And it was an intense move of prayer and fasting. And that book went all over. And see, all that was stirring there, the people, again, are you seeing this? This small group, Franklin and his wife and a few, they began to lead this deep prayer and fasting, and it, it caught on, and others began to pray. But that group, that prayer and fasting is what broke things open for the great revivals of the 40s and 50s, which overflowed into the 60s and 70s. So it always goes back to the intercessors. Let me say something. I'm going to share a little bit about Charles Finney, and I'm going to share just a, briefly about a revival in Ulster. But before I get into that, let me say this. When I was with Brother Holt the other day, he told me, and he's a very prophetic man, and um, he was sharing with me something. And he said this. He said, as, you're going to be, as we're earnestly praying for revival, and we're, we're going to see a move of God here, there's a harvest, etc." He told me this. He said, I, I feel like I need to warn you. And so I wanted to tell you guys this, okay? He was telling me this, this last Wednesday. He said, I feel to warn you to watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. Hello? <laughs> wolves in sheep's clothing. And so let me give you three different categories of this. The first category I would give you is that there are people that, or whether they're, Satanism or witchcraft, whatever, that they target churches for infiltration. This is not hearsay. I know this for a fact. I know this from credible sources. And I even personally knew a lady that was a Satanist that got saved under my wife's ministry testimony that was an infiltrator. So this is firsthand. I know what I'm talking about. These people are masters at pretending to be a Christian and infiltrating a church to destroy it from within. And believe it or not, this may sound crazy to you, but if you think about it, it's not crazy. How many, how many of us, we've been in Christianity long enough to know that there, we have all these different types of special classes and training about how to be a worship leader, how to evangelize, how to do this, how to do that. Well, in those groups I just previously mentioned, they actually have training on how to infiltrate churches effectively. So this is something that I know what I'm talking about. All right, so with that said, these people can be very dangerous, and their goal, see, Satan knows that Christians, that Satan knows that there's going to be certain people that are going to accept Christ as their Savior, and they're going to gather together, and there's nothing that he's really actually going to be able to do about that. But what he wants is, is that that group of people is totally ineffective and it is absolutely no threat to his kingdom. That's what he wants. And so how can he, he can't stop people from necessarily getting saved and gathering, but how can he render them ineffective, you see? And this is very telling. So the first thing that the previously mentioned infiltrators want to do is remove any type of prayer from the church. Did y'all hear that? They will do whatever they need to do to worm their way in. They pretend to be Christians. They can seem very spiritual. They can be very boisterous. They can be, you know, really demonstrative in their worship and all these things. And they, and they can be big financial givers. But at the end of the day, man, they are, they're not even saved. They're very dark, sinister people that are there to destroy things. And they will worm their way in to try to remove prayer. And then the second objective is this, to destabilize the church by bringing division in the camp. They will try to turn people against their leaders or against each other through gossip or whatever. But those two things, remove prayer and then destabilize the church. All right, now that's one category of infiltrator. The next category of infiltrator are people that are, in actual fact, they're Christians, but, man, they are demonized, and they are trouble. These people, many times, will be Jezebels and troublemakers, and they tend to go from church to church, place to place, and they come in, 
again, I mean, they can be, male or female, they can be really handsome and charismatic, and they can be, they can dress really nice, they're big givers, they're, they're faithful in their attendance, and all the right things, but man, there is a darkness about them, and they are trouble, and they will try to get their way, if they can, into leadership positions of influence. But those type of people, when it's time, it's like a Trojan horse. It's like the devil has a plant in the church. When it's time for an attack, the devil can really rise up and use them to bring a lot of destruction. So that's the second level, is people that are really dark, but they're, they're Christians, but they have a dark side, like a Jekyll and Hyde. They're one way, but they're actually another way also, you see. The third category, and this is, both of those are difficult for pastors, but this third one is really difficult because the third category are people that are Christians, and they're actually sincere, but even though they are sincere, they have undealt with issues in their life. Maybe they have inner healing issues. They've been wounded in life. Maybe they come from broken homes. They've just been through stuff. They, they themselves maybe have, um, they have things that in their bloodline that they haven't dealt with. There's iniquity that they struggle with still. But whatever it is, they have, they have undealt with issues in them as a pastor, you love these people and you care about them, you want to help them. But see, that can go either way. Either they can really humble themselves and they can let the Lord use leadership to speak to them and maybe tell them things they don't want to hear, things that they don't necessarily like, things that are uncomfortable to deal with. And they can humble themselves and submit under the mighty hand of God and let God deal with those issues. And if they do, it will turn one direction. It'll become a very positive thing. But if they don't deal with it and they, they don't want to hear it, God tries to use leadership to speak to them. They don't want to hear it. They don't like what's said. They kind of get offended. They got a chip on their shoulder, whatever. And they never will actually deal with their problems eventually it's going to catch up with them. And probably it's going to go the other way, like a negative way, where they end up coming under the influence of the enemy and they start causing problems and have to be dealt with in a disciplinary way. But when he was talking to me about wolves in sheep's clothing, he was actually talking to me about Christians in churches that have undealt with issues. That's really what he was saying. So not everybody that calls themselves a Christian, don't, I think you guys know this, don't accept people at face value. The Bible says that you know a tree by its fruit. And so it's our responsibility before God that we sit back and just simply look at fruit for a little while. Because I promise you over time, fruit can't lie. There's, there's a, how many knows that an apple tree is not going to produce pears. You watch that tree long enough and something's going to start popping out of that tree and you're going to know if there's somebody that's of the Lord or somebody that's not, but you've got to watch them for a little while. And I think a lot of times the problem in churches is that people, ministers or whatever, uh, leadership, they simply need help. And so the first person that comes along and seems helpful, they just let them just jump right in. They don't even know them. Man, I've heard so many horror stories from stuff like that down through the years, and I've seen it over and over. It caused destruction. So anyway, I wanted to share that with you. So that is the, one of the greater attacks is wolves in sheep's clothing coming in that they're just simply not of the Lord, and God's got to get them out. All right, but let me, let me deal with this tonight. I'm going to talk just briefly about the revival from 1857-1858 time frame. I talked a little bit about the mid-1700s, Wesley and Edwards and all that. Then I talked a lot about Cambridge. That's a great, I love that revival. Now I'm going to talk about this one. And then we know a lot about the Welsh and Azusa. And then later, 
um, 40s and 50s. So you guys know a lot about revival history. But I'm going to deal with um, the days of Charles Finney and just give you a couple quick things. But this is 1857-1858. Now, Edwin Orr is a, is a great um, historian, like a revival historian. And he studied this out. And he brought out that there was a man by the name of Jeremiah Lampier that began a prayer ministry, prayer movement. And out of that prayer movement gave birth to a great sweeping revival. And let me tell you this too. I think you guys have probably seen this. But the Bible says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. See, these revivals are not limited to just one little bitty location. Have you noticed that? When God began to move around 1900, for example, the Holy Spirit began to mightily move in Wales, and that swept over into England. And then just a few years after that, hit here in Los Angeles, and through that, swept all over the world. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's a great sweeping outpouring that affects the nations. It's a pouring out of spirit on all flesh. In the same way, in 1857, 1858, and on, um, this revival was not limited to Charles Finney. This revival swept all the way down our East Coast, even into the Deep South. And Edwin Orr brought this out, and I think I probably mentioned this, but he said that, look, he said the slaves that were coming into our nation, if you do some history, uh, there was intertribal warfare in Africa, and then the losing tribes would end up being sold, and they went all over the world. It wasn't just America. But the slaves that were here, you know, being in that situation, Edwin Orr said that, you know what, they could have in their oppression began to turn to other things. Like the, in Haiti, they ended up turning to voodoo. I'll tell you something interesting about Haiti. Did you know that around the time that America was founded, we had people that were dedicating this nation to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see. Did you know at that same time frame, French occupation was there in Haiti, the Dominican Republic? And did you know that Haiti dedicated that land to voodoo in the same way that we dedicated this land to God. And it's interesting. Look this up for yourself because I think you'll find this interesting. It's the same island. Look at Haiti and look at the Dominican Republic, and it's like night and day. That's what happens when you dedicate something to the devil. It brings a curse. It brings oppression and poverty. But the reason they made like a pact, Haiti made a pact with the devil was because it, they basically said, if you'll break off French rule off of us, we give this land to you. And now look at Haiti today. Abstract poverty and severe oppression. But Edwin Orr said, you know, he said, if you were to look back at this time with slavery and the oppression, he said, the black community, you could understand that, that maybe they would turn to something else. Because maybe they would look at Christianity as kind of being like the white man's religion or something. Even though it's not, it came from Israel, is Jewish in origin, in the Middle East. But they could have looked at it that way. But he said, thank God for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Spirit fell so hard, 1857, 8, 9, and on, that the Holy Spirit moved so mightily in the deep south that many of those slaves accepted Jesus as their Savior, and they were filled with the Spirit. And to this day, we have really powerful, Spirit-filled, Pentecostal, African-American churches that have their roots back in that revival. Isn't that awesome? This revival was wide-sweeping, and one of the most notable figures was Charles Finney. But Charles Finney knew that prayer was the key. Remember I talked about faith? Let me tell you something up front. Charles Finney believed this. He believed that just like if you were to go out and plow a field and you were to plant corn in that field and you were to water that corn, you should expect that in due season, corn's going to come up. He said in the same way, if you pray for revival and you plow and you keep praying, he said you expect that you're going to reap a move of God. It will happen. 
But see, you have to have faith. That's exactly what Charles Finney believed. And he knew the value of intercessory prayer. And so he had Daniel Nash and Mr. Clary, two men that would go before him. I'm just going to read what I have here. Finney's strategy for winning a city was simple. Prevailing prayer. And then, after that, powerful preaching. In the years prior to Rochester, Finney had perfected this style, and he became an effective soul winner. He himself would go off in prayer and fasting for a season and come back in the power of the Spirit. But upon arriving to an area where God was sending him, Nash and Clary would go before Finney, and they would rent a hotel room, and they would begin to pray and fast. They would lock themselves into the room. They didn't go out to eat. They didn't have food brought to them. They simply locked themselves away in that room to deeply intercede for that city. Nash and Clary would rarely be seen outside. They remain in that self-imposed cell where they were overcome by the spirit of prayer. They would fast for days, prostrate themselves upon the floor, and through much weeping and wailing, make intercession for the city. If Finney relied on the power of that prayer. Prayer was the foundation for his ministry and the key to his success. Finney began meeting with some influential people in the town and set meetings and times, and he would preach every evening, three times every Sunday, in a wood building that had been constructed by whatever place he was at. And during the day, he would meet with those who were concerned about the state of their own souls. One of the first salvations in the city was one this way. A woman of great influence and social class came to visit him. She was anxious about her own soul, yet unwilling to give up her worldly ways. See, the prayers of Brother Nash and Clary caused the Holy Spirit to be brooding over the city. And people found themselves in a state that they were concerned about where they're going to spend eternity. How many knows that we need that right now in America? We need a brooding of the Holy Spirit that will cause people once again to be concerned about what is after this life. Where am I going to spend eternity? She ended up, after meeting with Finney, became greatly convicted and surrendered her life to Jesus. She was gloriously saved. This high society woman began to invite her friends and family to come join the meetings and visit with Finney. Her influence caused the meetings to grow quickly. Finney was always striving to perfect this method of soul winning. Here in Rochester, he began to employ this ancient, ancient seat, okay? He would preach against sin, holding nothing back, and then he would clear the front seats of the sanctuary and ask anybody who was anxious that they were, basically, they were under the conviction. They felt, where am I going to spend eternity? They were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He invited them to come down and sit in those seats. And there, he and other ministers would pray with each of them individually until they felt the victory of salvation. In fact, Finney's new measures, as it was called, had been greatly criticized to point, uh, but here, or to this point, but here in Rochester, the results spoke for themselves. The criticism and persecution he once faced faded, and this became a pattern that he would repeat, that would be repeated into the 20th century. See, Finney was the first one to do altar calls. I know, did y'all know that? He was the first one to begin to do altar calls. This is later as, as the revival began to really grow in full power. It's, they said about Finney, Brother Nash and Clary would go and they would intercede. And Brother Finney would get up and get, begin to preach. And as he preached, they said that there was something that was on his words that would just pierce through the congregation. And the Holy Spirit will come so strong upon people that sometimes people will come under the Holy Spirit's conviction so strong that in a seated position, and sometimes even doubled over in a fetal position, they would just fall out of their seat on the floor under conviction. And Finney had people that worked with him that would come and kind of pick them up and bring them down to the altar where they would just drop them there. And then Finney, after he was done preaching, would go through and lead each one of them to Jesus. Finney's revivals sparked a great awakening and unified the country around the Bible and the power of prayer. His teachings on Christian perfectionism inspired the holiness movement of the latter half of the 19th century and the Pentecostal charismatic movements of today. Isn't that something? So he understood the power of prayer. 
And that's exactly what I, I've read about in the Argentine revival. Man, they understood. Carlos and Acondia knew he was going throughout Argentina, and they would pray, Lord, where are you sending us next? And, and the Holy Spirit would lead them toward a certain direction. But Carlos and Acondia knew, man, we better pray and fast that God go before us. And they would begin to hold prayer meetings and get on their face, and they would pray and fast, and they would ask the Lord, go before us, Lord. Bind the strong man and release the captives. And they would pray until they felt in their spirit that it was done, and then they would go. You see, they knew the power of prayer. And Carlos Anacondia, I'll never forget, and I think I've shared this already, but please remember this. Whenever Stephen Jerry Hill were there as missionaries, there was somebody that came up to him and said, do you want to know why these meetings are so powerful? They said, follow me. And they went back behind the stage, and there was a stage about waist high, that Carlos and them would get up and they would preach to the crowds. And they went to the back of it, and there was a curtain around the bottom of the stage, like a, like a skirt of the bottom. And they pulled that up, and they said, look under there. And as they knelt down and looked, they could hear all these intercessors that were under there that were weeping and wailing and crying out for souls. Isn't that something? And Carlos Anaconda would stand up on that platform, and there's people beneath him weeping for souls and crying out. And he would begin to say, you listen to me, Satan. I bind you. Release them. And people would begin to be thrown to the ground under the power of manifesting demons that be drug off and get delivered, and the harvest yielded. Isn't that something? Town after town after town, this swept through all of Argentina. And it all went back to Edward Miller and a little group of people that had persistent prayer until they got the breakthrough. Hopefully, I've emphasized this enough to bring the point home and really drive it in. It's always prayer, and it's usually a small group that bursts the greatest revivals. Now, I'm going to read you one more in this time, 1857, 1858. Remember how I said these revivals seem to sweep the world, you know? Well, here we are in the States, and we all kind of know at the time we've read about Finney, even though there were great sweeping revivals all down our East Coast and into the Deep South, we just know about Finney the most, but there was revival breaking out in other places. This is actually one of my favorite ones to read and one of my favorite revival stories of all time is in this revival in the school of Coleraine. And I'm gonna read that here in just a moment. But this was a place, I'm gonna read what this individual wrote. He said that during a recent mission to Europe, this guy was saying he had the privilege to visit sites connected with the 1859 Ulster Revival in Ireland, okay? The local churches were celebrating the 150th anniversary of this mighty move of God. I, he said here, I purchased a number of books on the revival and the privilege of traveling uh, with two of the authors of these books to key revival sites and hearing the dynamic testimonies. But here's how it all began. Just like... Um, you remember how Evan Roberts went to a meeting and there was a preacher and that sermon sparked something in him, bend us, O oh Lord? Sometimes there's just a divine appointment. But there was a reverend, J.H. Moore, who exhorted young men in a Bible class to do something more for God. And he said, could you not gather at least six of your careless neighbors and spend one hour with them reading and searching the word? In other words, let's start doing more. And so the result of that was, in response, James McQuilkin, Jeremiah Manili, Robert Carlisle, John Wallace, four guys began a weekly prayer meeting in an old schoolhouse in Kells. Four guys. They met every Friday night from September 1857 through a long and cold winter as they read and meditated on the scriptures their hearts began to burn with an unquenchable fire from heaven, which eventually set all of Ulster ablaze for God. Just like in the Hebrides, this was a revival that shook the region. You guys, this is amazing. They believed in the sovereignty of the Holy Ghost, the sufficiency of the Scripture, and the secret of holy prayer. They studied the Word and prayed three months before they began to see any visible results. Two more men joined the group, 
And then New Year's Day of 1858, the first new birth took place as a result of their prayer meeting. And by the end of 1858, about 50 young men were taking part in weekly prayer meeting. Many ridiculed these young men. How many knows there's always going to be the critics and those that ridicule? Many ridiculed these young men for praying for revival. Others criticized their determination not to allow women in the meeting, but the reason for that was because they didn't want anybody saying that they were doing this just to meet women or to be flirtatious or something. They were really trying to keep it pure. But there were humble beginnings. Edwin Orr wrote of these humble beginnings of the 1859 revival. This revival, which originated, remember, it was, they were praying in 57, 58, okay, before revival really started raging in 59. This revival, which originated in a prayer meeting of four young men in a village school, House of Kells, made a greater impact spiritually on Ireland than anything else since the days of St. Patrick. Isn't that something? Four guys in a cold schoolhouse praying that prayer broke something loose that ended up shaking Ireland. Faith grew, hope brightened. The power of the prayers began to be known, felt, and seen. A contemporary account describes the year of grace in this way. The winter was past. The time of singing of birds has come. Let me skip down to this. There was a conviction that began to invade the area. How many of you guys would like to see that we're here praying and the Holy Ghost begins to move all around these neighborhoods all through here? You don't even have to get out there and preach fire and brimstone per se. I mean, the Holy Spirit is just brooding. And all of a sudden, people are under the conviction of the Spirit. And they don't know what to do, but they begin to make for the church because they're looking for help. They're convicted. They know that they're not right. And they know that they need salvation, you see. And that's what's going on in these times of revival. Church services and prayer meetings to begin to be attended by an immense audience filled to capacity with much earnestness, and many appeared to be in deep mental concern. Pubs and bars begin to close. See, it sounds just like Hebrides, doesn't it? Prayer meetings begin to multiply. I'm going to skip down to my favorite, one of my favorite revival stories. The school at Coleraine. Now listen to this. As revival begins to take place, the Holy Spirit is brooding. How many of you guys would like to see this in the schools? Listen to this story. In Coleraine, at a local school, a school teacher seeing one young boy clearly under the conviction of sin in the middle of his class. He's just teaching on math or whatever. Nothing spiritual going on, but he sees this boy that's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So the teacher advised him to go home and call upon the Lord in private. So he sent him and an older boy who had found peace the day before, an older boy who had accepted the Lord, he sent them out. These two boys had travailed in prayer for some time, and the young boy was blessed with the sacred peace within and rejoicing. He returns to school with a beaming face and reported to his teacher, Oh, sir, I'm so happy. I now have found Jesus in my heart. These were strange words in cold times. Natural words, though, in times of revival. But the attention of the whole class there was now arrested on this one boy. One boy after another <laughs> silently began to slip out of the classroom. And after a while, the school teacher looked out to see the boys on their knees throughout the playground, each one of them in earnest prayer. He turned to the two boys and asked them, do you think that you could go pray for the rest of them? And they did so. Kneeling down with each one of them, they began to implore the Lord to forgive their sins and turn them to Jesus. And that silent grief turned into great joy of salvation. As these cries, so listen to this. You would think that would be enough, right? As the cries of these under conviction of sin at the boys' school, as these cries reached over to the girls' school, they too began to fall on their knees and weep in grief over their sins. The cries of the boys and girls at school reached even passers-by in the adjoining streets. These are adults 
that are just walking by the school. They were in the right place at the right time. The cries of the boys and girls reached them, and the conviction of sin came on these adults, and they fell on their knees in the streets pleading with the Lord for mercy. It seemed as if every available spot was filled with sinners seeking God. Pastors and men of prayer were sought out, and they spent the rest of the day praying with these mourners that were crying out for salvation. The sweetest of all toils that this earth witnesses when men labor and intercede for those who are broken in the sight of God, before, before God, rather, for their sins. Dinners were forgotten. Tea was forgotten. And it was not until 11 o'clock at night that that school premises was freed from the unexpected guests. Now, how would you like the Holy Ghost to fall on our schools like that? Wow. And don't think that he can't. I guarantee you the Lord could do that in our schools. Wow. That's one of my favorite stories in revival. And look at this, the marketplace. An open-air meeting was held to hear testimonies from those who had been born again. Masses of people from town and country began to pour into the square, and it became clear that the multitude could not hear the voices of the speakers on the platform. So it was suggested that people should separate in different groups. One of the ministers testified afterward, I never saw before in any audience the same searching, the earnestness, the riveted look of the faces um, that were staring at those that were sharing the testimonies. I remember while I was speaking, asking myself, asking myself, how is this? Why is this? A very peculiar cry arose at one of the side of the square, and, and in less than 10 minutes, the whole multitude was overcome with the conviction of sin. The minister testified he spent the rest of the night leading one after the other to Jesus. The Holy Spirit just fell. The next day in the marketplace, was a scene of dense multitude gathering for the preaching of the gospel and prayer. It goes on and on. It talked about strong men. I could keep reading story after story. It talked about strong men who were like farmers and ranchers. They were rough. They were tough. And there they were. The Holy Spirit would begin to fall. And they said they would see some of these, these burly, tough men begin to just shake. And began, tears began to go down their face, and they'd end up falling on their knees asking God to forgive them. Only God can do that. But it's all birth in prayer. As we're kind of closing out this sermon series tonight, as we talk about revival, paying the price for revival. Let me just kind of bring it to a close here. I could read, there's several stories in here. This is the revival at Ulsta. If you want to read more about it, look it up and Google it, and you can see it for yourself. But I want to close out, skipping through so many stories, just close out here about, um, here was the revival prayer. I'll give you a couple more things. One of the prayers used multiple times in this 1859 revival and was later printed as a decision card for those who wanted to wholeheartedly surrender their lordship to Jesus. This is what they would use, okay? It was your decision to accept the Lord. And here's what they would pray. Number one, I take God the Father to be my God. Number two, I take God the Son to be my Savior. Number three, I take God the Holy Spirit to be my sanctifier. That's a good prayer right there. And it said, number four, I take the word of God to be my rule. Number five, I take the people of God are now my people. And number six, I likewise dedicate myself wholly to the Lord. And next, I do this prayerfully, deliberately, sincerely, freely, and forever. Isn't that awesome? You know, the thing is in revival, it's simple. And I, I say it with great respect because I, I love Steve Hill with all my heart. And I mean, his ministry really changed my life. And he's in many ways the spiritual father of this house. But Steve's sermons were anything but deep during revival. He used to say this himself. He would say, I preach sermons on moron level. <laughs> he would say that. He said, my goal is I want the little kid over here to understand what I'm saying just as much as the adult over there. I remember at One Awake America, I just kind of chuckled because I knew his heart about this. 
One of his sermons was, his whole sermon was, come, C-O-M-E. That was the sermon. Come to the Lord, you need salvation. But there was such a conviction on it that all these people came to the Lord that night and accepted him. You see? So there is something about in times of revival, the simplicity of the gospel. Don't complicate it. But I want to close with this. We were talking about faith, remember? Hebrews 5, 7. In the day, talking about Jesus here, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, talking about when Jesus was on the earth, he offered up definite special petitions for which he not only wanted but needed, and listen to this, and supplications with strong crying and tears to him who was always able to save him out from death. And he was heard because of his reverence toward God. Although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I mean, it was God lets us sometimes go through some things. But it said about Jesus, he had loud cries and tears in his prayers, and he was heard by God. Think about what I'm reading here. Jesus, as the Son of God, loud cries, loud prayers and tears, and he was heard because of his reverent fear toward God. In Matthew 18, 19, very popular passage we all know, Jesus said, again, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth as touching anything, whatever you ask, it'll be done for you. So there in the Greek, though, it says, again, I tell you, if two agree, agree means to harmonize together, like a symphony. It's the Greek word symphono, means to harmonize together. There's got to be unity. The sounds, like we've been saying, the sounds have got to be from the Holy Ghost in harmony and unity together. One person may be under a deep groan, a deep travail. Another is praying in the Spirit. But it's, it's all by the Holy Spirit orchestrating and bringing together like a symphony. Think in, in, for a moment in your mind of a symphony. You, the Holy Spirit is the conductor up there. And you've got this violin playing this. You've got this cello playing this. You got this flute playing this. They're all playing different things, but it's all like a symphony. It harmonizes together and forms a beautiful sound. All of us being led by the Spirit, there's a harmony all coming together in perfect unity that brings up a sound before the Lord. And it says this, that again I tell you that if you, if you agree on earth like that, Spirit-led prayer, together, whatever you ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. That's the type of prayers that get heard. But it's got to be unity, and it's the Holy Spirit orchestrating it together, okay? And it says also where two or three are gathered, and that means drawn together by the Spirit. In the Greek, it means they're drawn together. Where two or three are gathered Drawn together in my name, I am in the midst of them. So there's something here of a promise. Think about what this is saying. Let me now kind of give something here that I want you to take away from this sermon. The Lord promises this to us. When he draws the right people together by his spirit, usually small numbers have birthed the greatest revivals, okay? When he draws those people together by the spirit, they're drawn together. He says, I'm in the midst of that. And as they begin, like a symphony, to begin to offer up their worship and their prayer and their deep intercession, that goes together as a prayer of agreement before the Lord that he says, under those circumstances right there, whatever they ask, I will do. Do you see that? But again, it's the right people drawn together and it's a symphony. And those that have wisdom know that you, if you want to see major answers to prayer, you want the right people together and the wrong people out. The wrong people can hinder. And I love Brother John Davis. I don't want to say too much because he's not talking about this publicly. But, you know, he's had the wisdom whenever he's had some gatherings. It's invitation only because he knows who he wants there. Because those people will come together in agreement 
And those are the type of prayers that get answered. So let me end this sermon series by kind of recapping what we've covered. Number one, remember, this may go back a ways, but we have to be willing to be different than the norm. We have to be willing to pay the price of humbling ourselves in prayer, fasting, living a lifestyle of being a giver, and deeply consecrating our lives unto God. And tonight, what I'm trying to say, and I hope people take this away from this sermon, is God has to put in us. It has to be a God thing. God has to put in you, like in your belly, he's got to put a deep cry, a groan. Deep calling unto deep. It's a desperation that God himself puts in you. And that deep cry going out to him, deep calling unto deep, that desperate cry, that is the type of thing that will intensify the closer we get to revival. And that is what will cause revival to really break forth. And finally, we have to believe that God hears and answers our prayers. Please hear this and look this way. This is what I was trying to get through to everybody through Charles Finney's ministry. When you plant the crop, you have to expect the harvest. We have to believe God. We have to believe that here we are drawn together and it's a symphony of prayer going up. We have to believe that God says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever comes to God must believe that God does exist and that he is the rewarder of those who urgently, earnestly rather, and diligently seek him. So God is the rewarder of those who seek him. So we have to believe that as we're drawn together and we're offering up a symphony of prayers in unison like that, that God is hearing us and he is answering the prayers. And we have to expect that we're going to see it. How many people will believe with me? We may not see it tomorrow and we may not see it in a month from now, but we will most certainly see the prayers we've been praying. I'm telling you. And let me just kind of give you this warning. I remember there was a, a prophetic word in the days of uh, the prophets. I can't remember if it was Elisha. I think it was, but I may be wrong about that. But there was this story where Israel had been in a famine that was so bad that people were eating some really gross things like bird dung and things like that. I mean, they had been without food and water for a long time. And it was desperate times. And the prophet of the Lord gets up and says, tomorrow you're going to have food in abundance. <laughs> and some of the mockers said, oh, okay, only if the windows of heaven open, you know. They were making fun. And the prophet looks at them and says, well, it's still going to happen even though you don't believe it, but you won't taste a bit of it. And you know what happened the next day? God sent an angel and slaughtered the entire army out there. I mean, it was a huge army slaughtered. And these two lepers were sitting in there saying, well, if we sit here, we're going to die. But, you know, if we go out to the army out there, who knows? I mean, they may give us some food to eat or something, but if they kill us, hey, we're going to die either way. And so they wandered out into the camp of the army that was out there, the enemy, to find the angel that killed all of them. And the lepers were out there and started gathering up all their food. And they're pigging out, man. They're drinking the water. They're just pigging out. And one of them looks at the other and says, you know, I don't think it's right that we're out here pigging out while God's people are starving back there. I think the Lord's probably going to let some evil befall us if we don't tell anybody about this. So maybe we should go let them know. And so they went back after they got their fill of food. They went in there and told everybody, here's what happened. The mockers and the scoffers were trampled underfoot and killed but everybody else went out, and just like the prophet said, they feasted the next day. It went from having absolutely nothing to having an abundance overnight. God can turn it around in times of revival. Jesus said, you've been fishing all night. Hey, cast your net on the other side. And in that moment, everything changed. So just remember that. We will reap these prayers. It will happen. But it's our responsibility to have faith and believe God. 
So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this, this sermon series we've been going through, been looking at revival, and, Lord, praying and believing together for a move of God. Lord, we thank you for hearing and answering every prayer, meeting every need, Lord, over this series and the lives of those that are listening to this. And, Lord, I'm asking you and those here in agreement with me, not only in us, but those that's going to be hearing this series, Lord, put in us a desperate cry. Put, it, put in us, Lord, a hunger to see revival and put in us, Lord, the grace to begin to really pray uh, and earnestly intercede until revival comes. And, Lord, a persistent, prevailing prayer. Let it come, Lord, and we thank you for it. Let something come upon us Lord, like the men in Barvis and the Hebrides and that barn. There was only, you know, seven. Maybe there's some, some that, joined, that joined them, but I mean, it was less than a dozen people. Small group. But Duncan Campbell said a power broke loose in that barn that ended up shaking the whole of Lewis. Lord, that you will come upon us here in River of Life and others that are going to be hearing this as we pray, earnestly cry out, Lord, let a power break loose. Lord, that shakes our region, our nation, and goes to the nations of the earth, Lord. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's shut down recordings. How many of you guys learned something during this series? I tell you what, it sure stirred me up to pray, didn't it, you guys? I mean, I was already in prayer, but after reading these revival stories all over again, man, I've been going deeper in prayer than ever before.